let's talk science. From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. Hello listeners and welcome to the MindWise podcast. I am Tim and I will be your host today. You might have listened to the podcast featuring Marco and Javor where they interviewed Tasso Sarampolis once a week for the duration of the course Research Methods, Theory and Ethics. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend you to do so. In this podcast, I will be interviewing Pontus Leander. I got to know Pontus through the course Psychology in the Workplace, which he is teaching in the second year of our Psychology Bachelor program. In this episode, you will learn more about Pontus and his research, which focuses on motivation and goal pursuit, and social cognition. So without further ado, let's start. Live from the Heymans Institute for Psychological Research, I'm glad to welcome Pontus Leander to the MindWise podcast. Pontus, how are you feeling? Very well, thank you for having me. Great that you're here. Um, so from what Google knows and what I know is that after your graduation, you worked in the tech industry then continued to become a researcher at the Duke University until you somehow found your way to our beautiful university here in Groningen. What led you here and what kind of statistically significant experiences did you make along the way? <laughs> uh, well, what led me here was a, was a confluence of events. And um, uh, I should start by saying that Although I, I, I grew up in the United States, I am Swedish by birth. And so the idea of moving to uh, Europe, uh, particularly Northern Europe in general, wasn't uh, difficult to comprehend. And I was finishing my PhD and doing my postdoc work right around 2008, 2009, 2010, during the deepest pits of the recession. And anyone who is going to university now knows that this recession is being blamed on basically the, the idea that they will never have a career or there won't be really any hope for the future. Uh, and back in when I was finishing up my education, that was certainly the case. In fact, we were watching the numbers tell us that we, you know, our, our futures were in jeopardy and, and especially in terms of um, uh, trying to have an academic career. And um, so when faced with the realities of a difficult job market, uh, you have two choices. You can either change your career goals or you uh, expand your horizons. And uh, some of us, decided that we were quite comfortable expanding our horizons. And that includes looking beyond your borders and looking beyond uh, what you might normally be familiar with. And so so in my case, uh, that led me to apply uh, all over the world. And, and in my particular career field, there's maybe, especially as a research psychologist generally, if, if you, there's maybe 20 or 30 jobs per year on the planet that wow. are really good, that are really worth going after. And Groningen is a great university and... And it's a research university, and uh, one of the positions they were advertising, the one I'm, I'm in now, I uh, hit all the right notes on what I was looking for. The idea of living in the Netherlands is certainly uh, perfectly attractive. And so, uh, so yeah, I applied, and it worked out, and uh, I had no problem reminding them that I was Swedish when I was here applying and interviewing <laughs> with them, and the rest is history. And that was in 2011. Okay, nice, and... Uh... What kind of experiences shaped you on your way? 
it really comes back to when I was a bachelor student. Once I knew I wanted to do research in psychology, uh, motivation was never the problem. The problem was pathways, the opportunities, finding the means. And uh, the first statistically significant uh, experience I had was I'd finished my bachelor degree and was looking to apply to graduate schools and realized that I needed a lot more research experience than I had, which at the time was approximately zero. And I realized that I had to do this. And so uh, my first major experience was this idea of understanding that you have to invest in your education in ways that you would never expect to when you first get started. And in one way, by investing, I mean, you have a choice. You can either get a job where you make a little bit of money. And it, when you're starting after a bachelor in psychology, it will be a little bit. If their <laughs> money is not meaningful or useful. Or you can spend that time trying to advance your education. And so what I did was I volunteered my time in labs. I I took on this mindset that my time isn't valuable in this way. Like I, I don't need to sell it for money. And that liberated me to work with different professors. And as a volunteer, they were just that much more interested in working with me because I, I wasn't asking for anything. I wasn't showing up at their door wanting money from them. I just wanted opportunity. And they responded to that very well. And I got a lot of opportunity to invest in uh, myself by helping them conduct research. And they wrote me very strong letters for recommendation. I had some uh, remarkable um, learning experiences. And ultimately, after two, three, three years after I finished my bachelor, I started in a PhD program that I was very excited about. And it was my top pick and all this kind of stuff. And for that, the, the reason I got into that particular program, uh, aside from this, my past experiences and these kind of things, is that I, even at the time, I learned that I had to expand my horizon. So again, that's, that's one of these uh, themes. And uh, in this case, when I had gone for advice on what to do for a PhD, uh, when I was in, this was in Atlanta, Georgia, in the States, and the advice I got from a professor at the time was, well, where are you looking at applying? And I listed off two or three universities that just so happened they were all somehow within the physical proximity of Atlanta, right? I mean, maybe, you know, a few hundred kilometers at best. And he basically said, okay, let me stop you right there. You've got to think bigger. You have to think broader. You have to think wider because, uh, you know, the argument he made at the time was, look, no school is going to be that excited about someone who's applying to there just because they're close. They don't, they're, they want to know that you're there and you're willing to go the distance and make all these sacrifices because you want to be there specifically for the research that they're doing there. And so this made me realize that, yeah, oh, he's absolutely right. And I have to really expand. And, and so even when I was trying to apply for PhD programs, it was, um, I was looking at, you know, all across, in that time, all across North America, which uh, at the time was a big deal for me. And so, so that's what led me, uh, uh, from Georgia to what ended up not being that far away with North Carolina. But, um, uh, you know, d during this application period, I also got into school in Hawaii and this kind of stuff. But the point is, is that you, I applied broadly. And that's why I was able to move forward, was that I went broad. Nice. So you chose North Carolina over a tropical island. Wise decision. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in our course, Psychology in the Workplace, you told us that you worked in the, in the tech industry. Why did you decide to pursue a career in academia after already working a job? Well, yeah. So I got a job after my bachelor degree out of necessity. You know, you have to make money to live. And, um, and I, before I finished my degree, I worked 
So this was in the, in the late 90s when ISP, so Internet Service Providers, were, were first really getting big and, and starting to make lots of um, lots of gains in the market. I actually worked in that industry for a little while, um, uh, providing service to customers and this kind of thing. And living in Atlanta, Georgia, there's a lot of tech firms there. And so when I finished my psychology degree, I had a lot of friends who were in the tech industry. And, of course, I needed a job. And a couple of my friends were working for inventor uh who was working on this special type of uv light camera and they needed someone that could do marketing well i couldn't do marketing but i could try to do sales and so i you know i, I met with the with the owner and and had an interview and got that job and then um you know a year later i i got a kind of a, a bigger better job at a bigger more stable company but these weren't jobs of passion they were jobs of necessity. I needed an income. And on the side, so to speak, I was always, always working towards trying to get back into academia. Like, uh, uh, you know, you really feel like you're adrift or out in the wilderness sometimes when, when you're working and uh, realize that you're bringing home money. And that's basically it. That's your life. And it's just not very fulfilling or enriching for me. Okay. So. And what is the most important lesson you've learned while being a student or a researcher? Persistence is more important than ability. And what I mean by that is that if you, if you want to do something, if you want to accomplish anything meaningful in this life, you either have to, they say you either have to be lucky or smart. What I would argue is that you have to be lucky and committed and hopefully smart too. It could being, you know, but I consider that lucky. That's in the lucky pile because There's so many um, extraordinary researchers, intellectuals, artists, scientists, you name it, whose success and whose experience and whose lifetimes were spent with this obsessive pursuit of something that they truly valued. And that's where great ideas come from, is this, you know, when you think about something, sometimes night and day because it's bothering you or you're excited about it, that's where ideas come from. It's not how well you score on an exam. It's not how many points you can get on an IQ test. It's whether you really know something implicitly to be able to say, well, this is new or this is necessary. And that's where I think really great ideas come from. But that requires persistence and more, more than intelligence, more than these other things. Of course, those other things matter. But if there's one thing we potentially, I don't know if we can really control persistence, but if it there's one thing we feel like we can control. It's that it's effort, it's time and realizing most importantly, realizing that your time isn't actually worth anything. It's just limited in life. How do you cultivate that persistence for yourself? Yeah. Well, for me, uh, encountering repeated failures and, um, was, was it, you have to learn how to fail. Uh, some weight loss advice I heard on the radio once was learn how to suffer. That's how you lose weight. Well, same thing for pursuing a career. I mean, it suffers a strong word, but the idea is learn how to fail, learn how to hear, have people say no, learn how to be rejected and get back up and try again. Because over time, uh, unless you're just a really annoying person, persistence pays off. People admire that. They respect that. When you keep trying, especially if you show up smiling every day, ready to try again, and you're honest about your progress and honest about your mistakes, honest with yourself and other people, I mean, you, you don't want to be stupid about it. But the idea is that just getting up again every single time, that's what gets things done in this world. And because there's countless obstacles and obstacles are a given, that's a different kind of persistence than simply staying on a path that you know you've been on this entire time and continuing to pursue something because you've always done well in it. Like for me, that's not 
real persistence. That's just maintaining a path and, you know, taking, I'm sure, taking advantage of your skills and abilities and talents. But what happens when you encounter your first real obstacle? That's, you know, that's what, when a person's true character might start to emerge. And some people, they get back up, they try again. Other people, they deflate and that's the end for them. And so, um, I would say that that would be it. Okay. Your area of research and expertise is motivational goal pursuit and social cognition. For those people who are not familiar with these terms, imagine you're at a cocktail party and someone asks you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I don't think I've ever been to a cocktail party. <laughs> uh, and maybe this is the reason why, is because I can't answer that question uh, very well. Uh, what I can say is I've always been fascinated by the idea that we as human beings are somehow driven by something. And by driven by something, we may not even know what it is. Uh, but for some reason, this drives us and it leads us to pursue great things, do wonderful things, terrible things, experience great joy and great suffering, great loss, great need. All of these intense ex life experiences, in my mind, revolve around motivation, either towards one thing or away from something else. But we don't know what motivation even is. And we've been talking about it for well over a hundred years. I mean, William James was talking about it in the 19th century, you know, and, and all those Freudian ideas, all the way, all the way up to current times. Motivation is a central theme of what I consider is psychology. And, and in my mind, they're inseparable from one another. So there is that. Then there's this question about what is social cognition? And for social cognition, it's a little bit harder to explain because Really, all social cognition is, is, is trying to make this case that things like motivation, things like emotion, these really fluid, raw, kind of hard to grasp concepts that are fuzzy concepts, maybe we can build theoretical models and run experiments and, and conduct surveys and studies that give them a bit of an actual shape and form that might actually fit what, the way we think that cognitive processes operate and these sort of more mechanistic ideas of how the brain might work. You know, the, 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 the magic solution is one where you can build a theoretical model that's based on this almost mechanical, uh, uh, you know, the brain as this engineered construct that actually can handle the way we understand motivation and emotion and these more fluid concepts to operate. And so it's kind of this mix of un trying to understanding the architecture of something while at the same time trying to understand its fluid components as well. And so that's what fascinates me about social cognition. It's really trying to get at both at the same time and, and trying to make sense out of it. Mm. And what can we learn and gain from the research you and your fellow colleagues conduct? What the field in, in motivation science right now is really trying to understand is, in my perspective, for, for, my, for my corner of the universe, is one is there a such thing as these fundamental psychological needs that really drive so much of human behavior? Things like the need to be competent at what we do or to be autonomous and free from external forces, forces and control, uh, to have relationships with people, to get, have a sense of belonging. Um, are those needs there? Are they real? Do they exist? Um, and then if so, how does that how do they trickle down or manifest in our everyday life experiences, everyday behaviors? Uh, how we even perceive our world and, and, and operate within it. So that's one of the big questions. Another one of the big questions is how do we use motivation and what we understand about the social cognitive aspects of motivation 
just to live better, healthier, more fulfilling, and even potentially productive lives. And uh, what I mean by that is there, uh, there's a lot we know about adopting goals, uh, the types of goals that are likely to work versus not work. We understand that there's probably a difference between being motivated or wanting something and actually being committed to attaining it. You know, there's this idea that uh, uh, there's a difference, like, for example, with, with problematic eating behavior. A lot of people, they really want to lose weight, but they can't commit. For some reason, there's this difference between the extent to which they value something and the ability and their actual ability to do it. And that's what one of the other puzzles we're trying to solve is how do we bridge that divide? And I think the third topic, and this is where motivation and social cognition, I, I think, are intimately bound, is this notion that there's a lot of what we do that is either not being controlled by consciously held motivations uh, you know, some a lot of motives might be sort of unconscious, or if maybe if we have these sort of fundamental psychological motivations, maybe they're unconscious. But there seems to be this divide between what we think are consciously held goals and unconsciously held goals, and and both seem to have an influence on behavior. It's just we don't understand it yet. But then there's this other piece, which is the notion of something like habits. There's a lot of things we do that we cannot even identify as being goal directed or motivated at all. There's a lot of unexplainable behaviors out there. Some of them are quite extreme and they just seem to be mechanistic, you know, like, like, like hostile acts of violence, you know, that we hear about sometimes where it makes no sense. Why would a human being do this? Like there's no motive for it, no motivation for it, but maybe there is. And that's one of the questions. Is that just some sort of strange, you know, thing that happened in the brain that activated and led to this explosive violent response? Or did, was there some sort of motive buried in there that we don't really understand or know about? And so that's this other piece, which is this sort of this unknown motivations and, and, uh, and whether everything has to be motivated or not. Maybe there's just some habits that are just sort of these fossils of old gold pursuits that we just keep doing now for no particular reason other than we haven't had a chance to change them or a reason to change them. So those would be the big topic areas that I think will, will, will probably yield uh, exciting insights in the years to come. Okay, great. Um... Before this interview, I asked a few friends whether they have specific questions concerning motivation, and one scenario kind of stuck out the most. I think it's something we are all familiar with and probably have experienced at one point. It is about motivation loss. Whether it's about going to the gym or studying for an exam, either the motivation is very high in the beginning, so for going to the gym in January, and then drops, or the necessary motivation is only present when there's enough pressure, so one, weeks before the, one week before the exam. What is the best way to sustain motivation and, as you said, remain persistent? It's a tough question. Um, uh, I think, uh, let me start by saying that I would might suggest that there are two different forces at work. So one is this one that I really like, like the New Year's resolution problem. Like I'm resolute to going to the gym, I'm going to the gym, but then motivation just sort of fades after a while. Or or I commit to going to the gym and because I committed to going, uh, I somehow feel like that's good enough and I sort of slip away or I go once or twice. And that piece, this notion of where we have this burst of motivation and energy and then it sort of fades away, according to relatively recent research, might have something to do with this idea of whether taking action towards a goal that we've set for ourselves. For some people, they seem to interpret that as evidence that they're committed to this goal. 
right? And, and for them, it's self-reinforcing. I'm going, which means I'm committed, which means I'm going to keep going. But for a lot of us, especially things like goals that we, we know we need to do, but don't necessarily want to do, you know, for example, you know, going to the gym, maintaining fitness, you know, these kinds of things, studying. When we make some behavior, we treat it as progress to the goal, which is a slightly different way of thinking about it. Cause it's like the sense of partial fulfillment of the goal, as if that goal is a, something that you can attain, you know, but there's a lot of goals out there that you never can really attain. You can only maintain, right? And for, uh, and so one of the questions is if, if I go to the gym and I consider that completion or success or attainment, like I accomplished something, well, that might actually backfire because it basically in my mind, now that goal can deactivate because it's being satiated. Whereas if I, that same action, I were to interpret that as I went to the gym, I must be really committed. I am committed. Well, then maybe I'll go again because I use it as a way to signal commitment instead of attainment. So I think that's one of the key pieces. So that's sort of this, when we have this burst, but then we lose motivation over time. So I think it has to do with this idea of how are we interpreting our actions? Are we interpreting them as attainment or as commitment, right? The other piece, this notion of why do we only really start working towards something when the deadline is approaching? And, you know, when I was a student, this had to do with studying. Uh, Now that I'm a professional, it has to do with all kinds of other things from grant applications to preparing for courses to preparing exams, you know, you name it. And there's a few things at work here. So one, there's a long history of psychologists pointing out our collective human ability to always expand to the time we're given. So like if we're given three weeks to complete a project, that project will take three weeks, right? And we'll still finish like 80% of the work in the last few days. If we're given three days to do the same project, we'll probably complete it too, if it's just about effort. Uh, and, and we'll do all the work in that time period. And so this notion that if giving people more time to do something probably has nothing to do with increasing their chances of, of doing it because, uh, because it's ultimately we're responding to this external deadline. The deadline is our marker for when this needs to get done. And so, and I think that is the real issue is that for a lot of the things we do, whether we're a student or whether whatever it is in life, when you have deadlines, when you have all these external forces that are telling you what to do and when to do it, you don't really have much freedom there, right? So it's not like doing these things affords any sense of autonomy or any anything. all these things that we say should increase our feelings of intrinsic motivation. All that gets stripped away when someone is telling you, you have to do this and you have to do it by this date, right? It's totally external. So of course our brains are going to switch over to start responding to this as an external stimulus, which means we're, we're only, we're not going to pro, be proactive. We're just going to react. And so when that deadline approaches and gets closer and closer, well, then we start reacting. And the closer that deadline gets, yeah, the more strongly we react. That's why we're waiting. We wait until that deadline is right in front of us. And then, cause we're just reacting. Why? Because all we're doing is responding to external forces. That's it. The issue is, is that with studying and sort of the, the, the current model of education is it works exactly like that. However, if you say decide to, um, say you decide to go to graduate school, become, do a PhD, become a researcher, or become whatever it is that people want to become in life, you strip away bosses, you strip away all these things, and suddenly you're told, hey, here, you know, we heard you're interested in doing this kind of research or pursuing this idea or building this business or you name it. Um, yeah, cool. Sounds interesting. Maybe you get some investment, you know, in the form of grants or in the form of business investment. Who knows? Well, then you're suddenly on your own. And the only one who determines what you're going to do is you, right? So then what you might see is that a lot of people are just really good at 
doing work and, and maintaining and persisting, uh, period. And they work, a lot of people work constantly. Why? Because it's self-directed, right? They're not waiting for some external signal to tell them what to do and how to act and when to work and when to study. They just know that this is something I value and this is something I need to do. And so, uh, what I would suggest to the student is to look at his or her uh, working life, in this case, uh, you know, the school and the system that's set up, and just be aware that so much is being driven by external forces. I mean, maybe he or she got to choose her classes, which is great, but didn't get to choose the deadlines and didn't get to, don't, don't really get to choose the schedule, really. The, the only thing that, the, that you can really do there is anticipate these deadlines and then see if you can be more proactive by, for example, committing to study, starting studying earlier in the semester. And then when you do study early in the semester, interpret that as a sign of your commitment to studying such that when the deadline starts approaching, you can also start reacting to the deadline while having this, you know, this, this period of committed studying in advance. So I do say that these are two different processes, but ultimately they can go together, right? Because one kind of addresses how do you persist at something you start at at the beginning, whereas the other is what happens when a deadline starts looming and becoming bigger in our minds. And, uh, but it's a tough question. And, and everything I just said right now is only very loosely based on some exciting research. And it's probably going to take a, a number of years and hopefully some very good psychologists that are still coming up out of um, uh, education to explore, explain, and demonstrate as, yeah, potentially... Valid. <laughs> nice. So you mentioned uh, internal and external forces. How you would how would you connect these to the concept of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation? Yeah. So, uh, for the last forty fifty years, there's been this excitement about this idea that motivation is intrinsic, and intrinsic motivation is held up on this extraordinary pedestal as like the ideal form of of motivation to have it comes from within it's somehow inherent and it serves my fundamental needs and it's 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 just you know magical right and ironically because you know it comes from within yet ironically most research is trying to look at uh what happens how do you accidentally destroy it or how do you somehow what they call foster intrinsic motivation but the underlying assumption is that it's always some external force coming in that's trying to make something internal happen by applying external influence and and so we've as a field we've just struggled with it but to be perfectly honest the very concept of intrinsic motivation um has been a struggle just to understand and um Uh, a book came out in, in the year 2000 that basically brought in a whole bunch of different um, psychologists to to talk about intrinsic motivation. What is it? What do we think it is? And from different perspectives. And I mean, each chapter just took a totally, not to every chapter, but so many chapters took a totally different approach to just trying to define it. And so we don't really have a grasp on what intrinsic motivation is. And um, and some research that I'm working on with some colleagues, we're even starting to question, well, is all intrinsic motivation actually even real? Or is some of it just us thinking we're intrinsically motivated, but just not being consciously aware of the external rewards that we're getting? And we've got some really neat studies showing that you can use very subtle manipulations where, you know, they're, they're doing, you know, we're, I'm working on one thing while I'm being exposed to real pleasant pictures or pleasant uh, 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 fonts, you know, on the computer screen. And even that can increase a feeling that I'm more intrinsically motivated towards the task I'm working on. But these are just external rewards. So it's, it's not somehow inherent. And so it, it's possible that a lot of what we think about what intrinsic motivation is stems from 
the idea that um, we always consciously know the external rewards we get, which I don't think that assumption holds anymore. I think there's enough evidence to the contrary. And so, so it'll be interesting in the next few years to see whether intrinsic motivation really is what we think it is. But more importantly, there's still this underlying idea or ideal rather in psychology and in the Western world that motivation somehow should be intrinsic and somehow this is the best form of motivation to have. And yeah, I'm actually inclined to agree. It sounds great. <laughs> I wish I had more of it. Um, but we don't understand it. We really don't. I think the only thing that we as a society and as a science and as a culture um, have truly mastered is extrinsic motivation. And that's evident all over the place. And we know how to apply that. Do you think extrinsic motivation is enough to motivate you over the long run? That's a tough question. I think that there are, it comes down to the individual and what he or she values deeply. So like if I can imagine the scenario where if someone who, uh, so where I grew up, um, uh, there was a lot more poverty than I think there is here in the Netherlands. And I, and, and several people whom I'm close to that I grew up with are much more strongly and somehow inherently motivated just to get a good salary and a stable income and stuff like that. And that's not something that, fortunately, um, you know, my, my uh, parents took good care of me. And so that's not something that I grew up feeling this strong need to do or to have. And that lets me pursue things like art and science and these kinds of things. Uh, whereas uh, others, are they're really focused on money. And I think for some of them, the idea of making lots of money and money being this extrinsic reward, making lots of money or making steady income, that kind of stuff, that that does sustain their motivation over the long term. So for them, it's need satisfaction, whereas for me, it's not. But uh, you could make the case that if, if uh, our situations were reversed and I'd grown up uh, with constantly struggling, you know, with, with having food on the table or having resources, I might be exactly that way. And whereas if they had grown up, grown up in, 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 in the setting I was, I grew up in, maybe they would be scientists and these kinds of folks that can kind of more explore more abstract questions because they're, they don't feel this driving need to take care of the basics. And so I think that has a lot to do with it. Okay, great. I think this is a good point to wrap it up with a few rapid fire questions. So Pontus, who is your number one scientific hero? Number one scientific hero. Oh, wow. Um, alive or dead. There are people going back centuries and perhaps even millennia whom we've never even heard of, whose name never survived the passage of time or who was on the wrong side of a war. Uh, and going back all the way to, you know, when we were first developing math, mathematical ideas and theories and early algebra and stuff like that. There are people from that time who would probably end up being my hero because they truly generated novel ideas that have somehow become just part of human history, right? Yet we never know who they are. He or she, whoever those people are, those individuals are, uh, it fascinates me because they were probably in an environment where they had no external influence that was helping to drive their thinking. And uh, every now and then, of course, you hear the story about, you know, someone who, you know, um, uh, for example, there, there's a, a world famous mathematician who was 
who was uh, found in, um, I think just, who found a textbook in India, who was then recruited, you know, and ends up spending a career in Britain as, you know, very, very, very uh, capable uh, thinker and whatnot. And for me personally, um, as someone who is fascinated with psychology, I've, I've always been uh, enamored with certain ideas from certain people. And for me, um, uh, when I ask alive or dead, first my question, oh, I have to go back thousands of years to someone I've probably never heard of, and that would be my first hero. My next hero would be someone like, I'd probably say William James, you know, who this was, you know, not, right around turn of the century, um, uh, who is coming up with ideas about psychology that are still persisting today. And in fact, a lot of the ideas that came about about research on implicit social cognition, the idea of uh, priming and all this kind of stuff, stem from a lot of the stuff William James was talking about way, way back. You know, this idea of ideal motor action, this notion of you think it and then something happens and because you think it, you then want to do it or then you do it anyway, whether you want to or not. And so this this notion, um, so these early ideas where the, you know, it's not like they had data to go on or other people's theories to go on. They were just building on their knowledge at the time and a lot of creative thinking. Um, and then over the course of, recent history, I think the person whose work inspired me um, was when I was trying to decide what to do in psychology that, that I found fascinating. I expressed to my advisor at the time, Eric Vanman, uh, I said, well, I'm kind of interested in unconscious processes and how uh, the mind works without us really being aware of it, nonverbal behavior, and these all these kinds of things that is outside of our conscious awareness or control. And this led to uh, you know, I, I got handed a, a book uh, that in that book was a lot of details about research by uh, uh, John Barge and his students and a lot of the really exciting uh, priming research from the late mid to late 1990s that was just changing the way we were thinking about um, social cognition. And that I found that's what got me into this world of social cognition, because I realized that a lot of the stuff I was fascinated with. Uh, over the entire history of psychology, especially with motivation and unconscious motivation, these guys were really doing something with it that was, made it contemporary. And we're, we're trying to link it to cognition and what we know about cognitive models. And so uh, the reason I mention uh, those names is that uh, they the, all, the one thing, all three of these, whether it's some ancient person I've never heard of, whether it's a William James type or a John Barge type, all of these... Uh, uh, they're heroic for me in the sense that they inspired my sense of fascination with the field. Anyone else, there's lots of people who have inspired me to work harder, to have had really interesting, exciting conversations with, but those moments or those individuals uh, have, have somehow guided my fascination, and that that's exciting. Cool. What is one book every psychology undergraduate has to read? And you're not allowed to say work in the 21st century because you already made us read that. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, it, it's a, it's the same book that um, actually uh, I want any graduate student I ever work with and, and frankly, any colleague uh, I ever work with uh, or, or want to give advice to or whatever to read, which is uh, Paul Sylvia's book, How to Write a Lot. And um, it's a really short book and it only has one function. Uh, it's basically trying to give you ideas on how to use your time wisely and, and, and spend a lot of it writing and producing ideas and generating ideas. And the reason I think anyone should read this, especially 
people doing bachelor studies or pursuing an education is the premise and the ideas behind the book aren't just about writing. It's how to pursue a career, especially an academic career, no matter what stage of it you're in, how to pursue it effectively. And the ideas in there can really be distilled to some basic points. So one basic point is you carve out, you don't find time to write, you make it, you carve out time. And then you put that in your calendar and you allow no one to have access to, to that. That You defend that, you make it, instead of making it this thing you do after you're done with all your other obligations, you know, you've done your, if you're a student, you've done your studying, you've done your extracurriculars, you've done your sports, you've done your exercise, you've done cleaning, you've done, no, 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 no. All those are important. Of course they are. But your study time, that's the most important. And you have to, that's very hard to do because oftentimes studying gets put in the fringes here or there or there. But Paul Sylvia's point is, look, that's the problem. That's why people don't do well. That's why they don't write much or why academics, you know, professors or whatnot, never have time to produce papers because, well, they put that as the last thing they do at the end of the day when they're exhausted, when you should be putting that first on your list. And then you figure out, and then you put it in your calendar. You don't schedule meetings for that time. And any student I work with has gotten used to this idea. I won't meet in the mornings. And it's not because I like to sleep in, which I do, but it's because I'm waking up early to write because I know I've got to get that done. And um, you just change out the word how to write a lot and you change out the word write for study. And there you go. Exactly the same principle. It's a great piece of advice. Pontus, thank you very much for this interesting conversation and we will put links to the books you mentioned and the persons you mentioned in the description. And that was it for the MindWorks podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you want to give us your feedback regarding this episode or if you have suggestions for upcoming podcasts, please write a mail to mindwise at roch.nl. podcast was a production of Mindwise for the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen. Let's talk science! I did a little bit more louder.